we spend so much time thinking about the tech stack and the experience is the only thing that matters ultimately as a marketer. If you fail at a positive experience, you have failed. It doesn't matter what tech stack you're using. Hey, Dan McGaw here. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack agency, McGaw.io. Each week, I speak to executives to find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. Today, I've got Kyle Lacey. For the past five years, Kyle was the CMO of Lessonly. That was up until the high-profile acquisition by Seismic. Now he's the SVP of marketing for all of Seismic. Seismic is a global company and the industry leader in sales enablement and digital sales engagement solutions. They've built an enablement cloud with more than 150 tool integrations to help companies scale and simplify their work. With over a million users in over 100 different countries, it's safe to say they're a well-loved platform. Kyle's role with Seismic is crucial, and we're so excited to speak with him about it today. He's got two major beliefs that we're going to talk about. First, as you heard above, it doesn't matter how good or cool your stack is. If you're not putting the customer experience first, it's a bad stack. I mean, like full stop. Second, if you're not enabling your staff to get the most of your tools and continuously improve their processes, you're doing everyone, including yourself, a disservice. Kyle's got a lot of thoughts on both of these beliefs and a lot more. So let's get into it. I'm Kyle Lacey. I'm currently leading marketing for a enablement company called Seismic. And Seismic's based in San Diego. I'm based in Indianapolis. We currently help enable teams, mostly sales teams, customer-facing teams, uh, improve efforts, engage buyers. So everything from content management all the way up to training and coaching of the rep. I started my career, exact target. Uh, we IPO'd, acquired by Salesforce, and uh, spent a couple years in venture capital. Joined Lessonly in 2017 as a VP, my first VP of marketing role. And Lessonly was acquired by Seismic in August. And so now I'm SVP of marketing at Seismic. So content marketing all the way up to brand demand pretty much covers the whole, the whole gambit, both the team now and my career. Yeah. Congratulations on the acquisition, by the way. So I wasn't aware. Congrats on that. Now, you kind of skipped over this, you know, you went to venture capital, but I think we need to like kind of mention who you worked in the VC space because they're, they're pretty well known. I spent two years at OpenView Venture Partners, which is based in Boston, and they Series B, Series C investments, mainly product-led growth is where they've kind of set their stage. So think Calendly, Datadog um, companies. Expensify, which is like one of my favorite companies. There's yeah. there's a lot. I I was very lucky that Lessonly was a portfolio company of OpenView, and that's kind of how we got. You and I both know it's a small world that we live in, and there's a lot of overlap. And I learned that after the Salesforce acquisition. Yeah, I have a tremendous amount of respect for OpenView. So the interesting thing, you talked about enablement for Seismic, right? So help me better understand what that means. Like, what is the problem Seismic is solving, and like, what does it do? So it's how do you engage a buyer in the best way possible using both content. So if you're delivering a deck or you're delivering a demo from a content perspective, all the way to the entire life cycle of training and coaching a rep to be the best that they can be in the role. And I think what's so interesting, which was why the Lessonly acquisition was so powerful for us, is because Seismic as a platform touched everything all the way up to how do you make the rep the best at what they do. And it's fascinating to me, and I know you'll agree with this, hopefully. We practice constantly when we're in school, right? Like you practice sports, you do your homework, and then we get into the workforce and it's like, 
that kind of disappears. It's like we don't practice anymore, which is very odd to me. And so that's, you know, whether you're delivering a deck or you're getting coached on how to hit quota or onboarding reps faster, anything like that, Seismic solves. Now, interesting, because Lessonly, you were an LMS, right? Like Ultimate Learning Management System, right? We were started as an LMS. What happened was we realized pretty quickly that our platform and product was better suited to sales and customer service teams. Halfway through my tenure there, we made a pretty drastic shift to focus on sales and customer service and not HR, because HR is usually the LMS buyer, because we realized that they were a more valuable customer. And all the analysis we were doing, the cohort analysis, like churn, all of it, was just more valuable on the sales and customer service side. So if you think about from a category perspective, we started playing in the sales readiness space, which is like all of our competitors fit in there, which is like the mind tickles of the world, uh, which you know we don't actively talk about anymore. But it's an interesting story of how we figured out our category because we never really fit in a category, which is why we had to do a little bit different messaging and positioning as a company at Lessonly. And then when you say, you talked about the LMS, right? As an example, it's usually an HR decision, but you're targeting sales and marketing. Does this mean that, like, because when I think about an LMS, like I'll use product school as an example. Product school is one of my clients. They bought an LMS to manage their education platform and their content. When I was the head of growth at Code School, we had built our own LMS to distribute our content. In your case, right, Lessonly, if I'm not mistaken, they're not selling content. They're just a platform for the content. Are you saying yeah. your target was to go to sales leaders and then use the platform to train sales? Sales. Yeah, sales and customer okay. service, because there's a lot of overlap with the needs of a huge call center with the lead, needs of a large sales team. So mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's more about delivering content at the right place in the right time. And this also applies to seismic, like delivering yeah. content in the, sa- in the right point of the sales cycle is also important mm-hmm. as you're engaging buyers. But for Lessonly, it was training and skill development. And that's where we integrate it. We call them LXPs, right? Like the skill softs of the world or the Udemy's of the world. There's a lot of overlap in that space, which is why we moved quickly out of it and why it synced so well with Seismic's goals. Yeah, no, that's that's super, super awesome. And I, I would totally agree. I actually talk about this all the time with my team here is, you know, what's crazy is you if you work with a professional athlete, the amount of tape that they watch is absolutely yeah. absurd. And one of the things that we don't do in business at all is watch tape. And I'm like, listen, all of our calls are recorded. And don't get me wrong, we're luxury, we have the luxury of using gong and chorus and all these things. Yeah. But like, I go back and watch my presentations. I go back and listen to my podcast and I will sit there and take notes. And that's the difference in my opinion. I tell a lot of people this, like if you want to be a pro, you've got to watch your tape like, and you've got to practice and you've got to document your issues. It sounds like you're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. And you also need your coach or your manager to give you feedback on a constant basis. Like that's where the gong and choruses of the world, it's amazing, right? You can go back, like you said, listen to calls, but what about the feedback on those calls? And what about mm-hmm. the training of how to get better with like a screw up that you did halfway through it, or you didn't ask for the sale? So that's where a lot of people stop. It's the same with marketing. It's like, we just produce stuff all the time, but you should also be training your teams on what you're producing and enabling the sales team on what is in that campaign that you're launching. I've always thought this was important and I discovered it exact target, but enablement as a function sits in the middle of all of this stuff. And it's one role that a lot of startups 
and scale-ups fail to hire soon enough, which is like, how do we enable our teams? How do we take what product marketing is thinking about and actually train our sales reps to understand what the hell they're talking about from a persona doc, our messaging and positioning and all that stuff. I want to stop here for a moment because this is a huge takeaway from today's episode. Enablement is so often overlooked, but it's a vital part of a successful team. What enablement is doing is actually quite easy to understand. It's the practice of providing your team the knowledge and resources they need to do their job successfully. This is especially crucial in the context of the relationship between sales and marketing. But while enablement is easy to understand, it's oftentimes undervalued. You and I both know the marketing team does a lot of work. They build out content, provide it in an accessible way, and develop trust in your product or your company before a client ever speaks to a sales rep. But all of this work ends up being incredibly underutilized if you're not providing training for the sales team on how your marketing campaign drove people into the funnel and how this content can help drive the customer further down the sales funnel. According to Seismic, about 80% of content created by marketers goes unused by the salespeople. Not only are we not taking advantage of all of our efforts, but in many cases, companies are not analyzing their efforts to know what is working and what is failing. Recording your calls and tracking interactions is only as useful as the effort you put into actually using that information. As I just said in our conversation, athletes spend a lot of time reviewing tape and learning how to improve. So why aren't we doing that in business? You can use the recordings to inform your sales team of their meeting performance with clients. And we all know sales spends most of their effort in meetings. And if we don't analyze what happens in those meetings, we could be investing a lot of effort into the wrong sales talk tracks. If you are enabling your staff and providing constant feedback, you're just winging it. And that's really not a healthy way to run a business or even your own life. Now let's get back to Kyle. So just to switch gears a little bit, right? So you're at Lessonly, and usually the big, hairy, audacious goal for any company is to, is to exit, right? To either IPO or get acquired. So you did that yep. at Lessonly. Now, what are your main KPIs that you are tracking towards or big goals that Seismic is focused on? Like, is, it, is IPO the next big thing? I mean, there's a lot of different outcomes, man. I think that yeah. for us right now, Seismic's about 1,500 employees, $280 million in annual revenue run rate. Ours is still about scale. What's so fascinating yeah. with moving into this role, you know, Leslie was 250 employees. The same challenges are still here. It's just a different size. Like people and processes and probably technology, which, which we're going to talk about. So for me, the focus is how do you take what has worked well in the past with these jobs that I've had and, and how I've seen people build companies and apply it to seismic because... As much as we love to talk about frameworks and as much as you and I read LinkedIn posts all day about here's the 10 steps to whatever the hell, every company is different. Every team is different. And so for me, it is how do I take what I know and scale it appropriately at this level? Because it's just a completely different level than what we were experiencing at Lessonly and a completely different sales cycle. Like Lessonly was high velocity, Seismic's more enterprise. Very, very different models too when you're doing that high velocity, more mid-market and you switch to enterprise. It's a totally different pace and it can be hard to adapt to. Now, 280 million in revenue is pretty awesome. So you guys are doing pretty good. The company, of course, is growing. You have all these different focuses. What are your main KPIs? Like, If I went and knocked on your boss's door, like, how are you going to measure Kyle? What's he going to say are your three KPIs? I mean, we actually only have three objectives and they they have KPIs underneath it. But our three main objectives are sell more to the customer base. You know, we're multi-skew. It is grow global pipeline. 
inbound pipeline specifically for the corporate marketing team. And it is spread the seismic story, like the brand, basically the, how do we tell the seismic story in a bigger way, quarter over quarter than we have in the past? Those are the three. That's all three we focus on. So pipeline, revenue, and then we have brand components that are spread out across a lot of different things. So when you think about the true, like actual key results that you're tracking back to, pipeline attainment and revenue are the two main things that you're using. I'm going to assume like these things align directly with sales as well, which mm-hmm. probably keeps your team really well aligned. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, inbound is, and this was the same at Lessonly as it is at Seismic, inbound has a contribu- pipeline contribution number that we need to hit every quarter. So at okay. Seismic, the difference is, we have a pipeline number because we have longer sales cycles. At Lessonly, we we had a revenue number that marketing had to produce every quarter. And that allowed us to do things outside of just the revenue because we were producing so much of it that made us more creative and the brand more powerful. And branding is very near and dear to my heart. But what I learned very quickly by working at OpenView and being on the exec team at Lessonly was, if you're not growing, I don't care how creative you are. It's not going to work. Yeah. You've got to have the dollars at the end of the day. Now, in regards to pipeline and revenue, what are some of the big projects you're working on right now that are really driving uh, the success there? We spend a lot of time on the website. We have organic search, optimization of the website. We're going through, um, by the time this recording launches, we will have launched a new brand and website. Really? Yeah, we're overhauling all of it right now. A lot of the focus is on the website, you know, we're in the UK, Germany, France, a lot of EMEA, as well as Australia and North America. So you've got those web properties and we're spending a lot of time thinking about content and localization of content and the production of content that will drive organic search. Because ultimately, you can have an outbound motion. A lot of large enterprise companies do have an outbound motion. But if you can figure out the inbound side of this that can scale, and you're hitting SMB mid-market enterprise in like your corporate accounts, like it's sky's the limit. And so an organic search is a huge driver. It was a massive driver at Lessonly. We are investing heavily in organic search on the in the seismic side right now. But it's the, the website is mainly, and then of course we have the normal demand engine, we've got the events engines, we've got content engines, but we spend a lot of time thinking about search and the website. Now, when you what's your website built in? Uh, WordPress. I love it. WordPress. You're not one of the hipsters on Webflow yet. Look at no, this. No, 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 no. I decided very early on that I was I was not going to have an opinion on what platform we should use. <laughs> so yeah. I let the team decide. All right, let's stop here for a moment. This is something I have pretty strong feelings on. As you'll hear me say a little further into the episode, I think Webflow is very overhyped and it's just not there yet. When it comes to the debate between WordPress and Webflow, I'm going to continue to push WordPress, at least until Webflow matures their product. Let me explain though. The main difference between WordPress and Webflow is the style of user experience and the flexibility of the product. WordPress has been around for almost 20 years. This means the CMS, the plugins, and the community surrounding it is massive. Yes, WordPress might seem more rigid than platforms like Webflow as you might need a developer from time to time to help you build new pages or custom features. But the same is true for Webflow, and the price of a developer or designer who can build on Webflow is five times more expensive than the ones working on WordPress. Webflow tries to be the low-code and no-code trend kind of CMS. This means upfront it may be easier, but if you want to get custom with your design or integrate other technologies into the site like Forms, 
you can be really limited. The low-code aspect really limits what you can do. For companies that just need a simple website, that's fine, right? If you're building a brochure, Webflow is great. But once you start to add more features and customizations, you're gonna hit a lot of walls. WordPress, on the other hand, being the legend that it is, is compatible with nearly every tool or feature you can think of. The integrations are easier because the community has built over 55,000 WordPress plugins to make it easy. With Webflow, on the other hand, we're talking about a couple hundred. But I gotta add, a lot of the issues I have are a result of Webflow just being comparatively new. They're still sorting shit out, and in the few years, who knows, they could be crushing WordPress. Enough of my ranting though, let's get back to Kyle. Where are these customers going in your stack once they become a lead? Like what happens? We use Marketo, like we're a big Marketo shop. We have, what's great about Seismic's team is that we have an ops team and um, we have sales ops and we have a large marketing ops team and biz ops. And so our marketing ops team deals pretty heavily in Marketo, Sixth Sense, ZoomInfo. Um, I'm sure there's other tools that kind of float around in there, but those are the main three. But we are in the process of moving from Marketo landing pages to WordPress landing pages, but Marketo is still going to be the main engine behind the automation. And then we we mm-hmm. tap Six Sense and Zoom Info for kind of lead scoring and stuff like that. Are you using Six Sense for intent as well, or is it just for the scoring? Yeah, both. Yeah. And then with that uh, SDR, I mean, are they just doing all this out of Salesforce or is there any type of tool they're using to manage their flow, like an outreach or? Yeah. So we use outreach and we also, we have outreach in North America and sales loft in, in Europe. The sales tech stack as a whole is, is just really, really interesting. The market in general, like you, you have a lot of like revenue intelligence plays, enablement plays, content management plays, um, you know, the zoom infos of the world, the gongs of the world. Uh, sales yeah. readiness. Like there's just a lot going on right now. It's just exciting. It reminds me of what email marketing was back when we were talking about the marketing cloud at Exact Target. And that was 2014. Yeah. It's always embarrassing to me that I've been doing email since 1998. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what about your data and infrastructure, right? Like, do you have any knowledge into any of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, we use we use a combination of Domo and Tableau on the BI side, but it's mainly driven mm-hmm. from Salesforce. What are the products or tools that your team has used to try to inform that? Any user experience tools or anything like that doing tracking? We used Hotjar pretty religiously at Lessonly for more of the heat mapping component. From a testing standpoint, you know, a lot of that's built into GA, GA360. And then we use DemandWell for organic search. DemandWell is a fairly new company. They're a software that helps produce content as well as manage the right keywords. And I'm butchering that, honestly. You should go yeah. to Demandwell and check it out. But Demandwell was started by uh, Mitch Kazi, was one of the co-founders, and he was one of the original marketing people at Leslie. He used to do search for huge companies. At the time, Sears was a very large company. At the time, he was doing search. That's not, that's not the case anymore. But he built the organic search model at Leslie and then took it and created a company and we have we have used Demandwell Lessonly and we're using it at Seismic. Now with Demandwell, you had said it produces the content. Now, is this going to be like the artificial intelligence content writing gimmick? Or? No, 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 no. It's they have a they have like um support mechanism that that helps like if you need to produce the content, like they have a services arm that helps do that. But ultimately oh, okay. it's about how do you simplify the strategy around organic search? 
So it's more than just the, here's what keywords you should be doing. It's about like, what's the health of those keywords? What's the content you should be producing for those keywords? The reporting around all those keywords. It's a complete platform for organic search, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen much at all. I mean, they have a couple of competitors, but I really enjoy working with that team in general. And organic is just a huge component of scale. I agree. Now, it sounds like organic's a big part of your strategy. So it sounds like DemandWell is really helping you get that done. What is the way that you're managing that strategy in general, right? Because organic, don't get me wrong, while you can be SEO, content marketing, whatever inbound marketing, whatever strategy you want to use, I mean, what is your tactic that you're using to, to really build that? Content production. I'm going to simplify it for you, but we have, we have two full-time people on SEO and optimization of the website, basically, is what that team's responsible for. We have writers in-house, but we also have content production groups uh, like contractors. So it's a lot of the how do you produce the right amount of content at the right time and quality content. So if you're spending time to actually understand not just what keywords should be on a pillar page, but how to actually write the pillar page so it's meaningful. And that's kind of where we've focused, but it's a lot of it's content, like content production and content production globally, which puts a whole new spin on how you think about organic search, right? Because us saying sales enablement in North America, you can't say the same, same thing in Germany because enablement, the word enablement from a localization standpoint just means something very different in German. So managing organic search across French, German, you know, Panamia, as well as Australia has been a very unique challenge. And the localization of that content is a challenge as well. Yeah, how, I mean, localization, you talked about the new website and stuff like that and brought up localization. How is your team managing this? Is this a manual process or is it like a tool? It's pretty manual right now. And the reason behind that is you can automate the localization of content. You cannot automate the understanding of the content. I can't hand a one sheet on sales enablement or training and coaching to a Fiverr contractor necessarily, have them translate it into French and it make any sense in French because they don't have an understanding of the market. And that's one of the challenges that we run into is that we've got to be able to tier out content. So we have like tier one content, which is the highest value, highest viewed content on the website as well as through the sales process. And that has eyes on it, a lot of eyes on it. It has like the agency that's localizing it. And then it has the in-person teams, sales team, our marketing directors, reading the content and changing it. And then you've got tier two and tier three, which have lesser touches. But because there's like the tier three where it's still important to have those pillar pages, but it, it's not going to be as trafficked necessarily as some of our tier one pillar pages. How did you come up with the model, of the tier one, tier two, tier three? Was there a scientific process? I mean, it was keyword analysis by country. And that's where yeah. Demandwell plays in. That's where Alex, who runs our SEO team, that's where he plays into this. And, and I can't speak too much into the science behind it, but I know that it's a yeah. lot of it has to do with the keyword analysis by country, for sure. Yeah. Well, shout out to Alex for kicking ass there. So either way. Alex is awesome. Great job. Alex is awesome. Yeah, and job. Rachel. We're going to shout out to Alex and Rachel because they're, they're the, SEO, like the SEO team. 
It sounds like there's a unique opportunity. You know, I keep seeing all these artificial intelligence products like, hey, just give it a subject line and it will write a whole blog post if you tell it who your ICP is. Like um, Jarvis was the company. I met them at a conference and they're like, we're spending a million dollars a month on Facebook ads. And I was like, what? Like, how big is your team? They're like, 12. We're like, whoa, it's crazy. <laughs> and they just changed the company to Jasper. But like, it literally will write your blog post. I had somebody come to me the other day I was talking to and they were like, listen, I use Jasper. It writes a lot of our blog posts and it, and it works. So I guess like there's got to be a huge opening in the marketplace to get the artificial intelligence for localization, right? Because if it can pick up the dialect, understand the nomenclature of their language and understand the value prop of the article, it should be able to rewrite it for that localization. So Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not going to be the almost 40 asshole that's going to say, this is never going to work. The AI will never yeah. meet expectations. I will say that I haven't seen it meet expectations yet. Yeah. There will always be a need for the creative process. There, you know, Ben Horowitz's statement, the company story is the company strategy. The company story cannot be created by a bot. Now, the bot can tell the story, but the creation yeah. of that story has to come from an individual. So if we want to automate, great. But I need to see something that actually works. So hopefully it happens in the future. I think it will make marketing much more... I don't know if it's better or more interesting, but yeah, I've started to see more of that. I just haven't seen a tool that actually does it appropriately in the right way. Let's talk about Jasper AI and other artificial intelligence programs like it for a moment. This is some crazy stuff. You give it only a little bit of input and it can churn out a full length blog post on any topic. There's another company called Copy AI that does the same thing as Jasper and another company called WriteSonic. And there's probably 50 other AI copywriting tools that I'm missing. So if there's one that I'm missing, let me know and I'd love to be able to feature it. I wanted to test this out myself and I started a blog project on Copy AI. All I did was give the title, what is Magal.io and wrote a brief sentence that describes what I wanted from the blog post. I wrote how Magal.io helps businesses build a successful MarTech stack. The generator allowed me to choose a tone of voice, and I selected professional at first, and it gave me this intro for the blog post. As a business, you want to be successful. You want to be competitive in the market, make money, and grow your organization for the long term. But with the rate of which technology continues to advance, it can be a challenge to stay on top of everything. Magal.io makes it easy for you to build an end-to-end -end solution that helps you manage your business workflow effectively. That was an amazing introduction that it wrote for me. And for fun, I switched to a witty tone and it spit out this intro. Sometimes we can get so distracted with all the shiny tools that we forget to ask, how exactly does this connect with the other stuff I'm already paying for? Now, that was the second intro it gave me just by changing tone. Crazy, right? So should copywriters be worried that AI is going to take their job? No, not really. There's still a lot of limitations that come when you remove the human element. For instance, AI does not have judgment skills like we do. It doesn't understand when you should change a tone, and it also doesn't understand how long you should spend on one topic. AI is limited to the keywords you give it, so it won't know how to be creative and it will often repeat itself. So while it may not be great at writing long form blog posts, it may be a good hammer to use on those tedious video descriptions or small bits of web copy. I'll let you ponder over that later, but for now, let's get back to Kyle. So interesting enough, you made a comment there in regards to over 40, you don't want to be a naysayer of artificial intelligence, right? Let me ask you a, a great question. 
What have you been a naysayer over? Because if, if anybody's a naysayer, I'm a naysayer of Webflow, right? I'm like, it's never like going to be as good as WordPress, um, but, which is not a never. It just will be a few years. So what have you been the biggest naysayer of over the past couple of years? So there's a couple that I got wrong. I was a huge component of social CRM early on. We're talking like yeah. 2013 and it didn't happen. Nobody cares about it anymore. And now it's starting to pick back up again with social selling. Yeah. I was a huge naysayer of data management companies like ZoomInfo and oh, intent really? companies. And even the idea of ABM. And I've come around as, as I've grown in my career, blah, blah, blah. So tell me about this. You had mentioned you have a feature called Live Social. What does this thing do? It's an engagement tool that helps reps share content, the right content, gives them like delivers content to them within the app to share on LinkedIn, to share on Twitter, to share on social media. Oh, okay. And it also helps just with engagement. If you've got a sales cycle and we know the person's on LinkedIn, if you use SalesNav to kind of figure that out, you can use live social to try to engage and share content that's meaningful for, for that deal. Um, it's yeah. just one, one more component, in our opinion, of enablement and content management. You know, if you think about delivering a deck or a one sheet or a case study or whatever at the right place at the right time in the buying cycle, you should also figure out how to engage the buyer on social at the right place in the right time. Now, when you think about the things people should be thinking about, right? Like when you think about the stuff in the stack that you see people make mistakes on or any recommendations that you would have for other marketers on how they can build a stack or optimize a stack, what would be the three things that you wish people would think about when they go to build their stack? Experience is number one. The customer, the individual's experience with what you do, whether that's the website or they're calling the office or whatever, or they're at an event. We spend so much time thinking about the tech stack and the experience is the only thing that matters ultimately as a marketer. Like if you fail at a positive experience, you have failed. It doesn't matter what yeah. tech stack you're using, right? So experience is number one. Scale is number two for me, right? Like if a product cannot scale with the needs of the organization, the customer, then you're lost. And that's, you know, and that could, you could map that to Marketo, demand what, like any of the other vendors that we're using. And then yeah. the third thing is ease of use. Those are my top three. Every company is different, but there's, it's got to be easy to use and it needs to be robust at the same time, in my opinion. And there's a lot of different variations of that across the tech stack, right? And you know, product-led tech usually is a little bit easier to use than enterprise tech, but you got to yeah. try to find the balance there. And if my team is very confused on how to use it and they need to keep going back to the services team to try to figure out what to do, like you've, you've lost it for me. Those are my top three. I love it. Now, I think your first one with that experience, the customer experience and things like that, I think one of the things that I try to always get people to focus on is like, your MarTech is supposed to make a magical experience, right? It's nothing yeah. else other than that. And I think people get lost in regards to like, well, it's got to be able to do all these other things. It's like, at the end of the day, we have a customer who wants to pay you money. Let them pay yeah. you money. Give them a great yeah. experience. Take them to Disney yeah. World. Yeah, uh, the, the journey should be educational, enjoyable, and to the point. Yeah. Doesn't matter what the sales the cycle point. is, to the point. And scale, I think, is great because I think that's a spot on uh, point in regards. A lot of people buy tools and they can't keep with. And the last thing you want to do is switch out a tool when you're like mid scale and you're like, ah, we've got to get rid of HubSpot marketing automation yeah. and switch to Marketo because you know we're scaling now. I just that's yeah. always a bad place to be. 
Yeah, 100%. You do not want to rip rip out things. Like you want to you want to get a tech stack that's manageable and meets the experience and, you know, one of our you know, our marketing mission at Seismic is to create unforgettable experiences. And mm. that's hard to do. That is very hard to do. But that's what it should be. You could talk about attribution modeling all day long, but if a customer cries at a conference because they loved it, that's an unforgettable experience. Not the fact that marketing created X amount of that. But that comes back to our original comments, which is you've got to manage both brand and revenue at the same time because the only way that you can create an unforgettable experience is if the company is also growing at the same time. Yeah. You need the money to be able to create that amazing you do. You whatever do. experience to get people it, to cry. Yeah, uh, and that's why I love software. That's why I love venture back software is because you have the yeah. ability to do this in a condensed time frame that no other business can match, honestly, unless you're like the MailChimp and data dogs of the world that just scaled, you know, Calendly. That's just like, wow, this this scale is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but that's why I love software so much. It's because you can do that. Yeah. And Calendly, oh my gosh, did they scale? Like, man, they went from nothing <laughs> so, to I it. loved it. Man, it's such it's a good story too. Are. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about your career, right? Like, are there two or three pieces of software that you really think have been helpful to your success? Like something you use over and over again? Salesforce. People can hate on Salesforce all day long, but I've used it from the very beginning and I use it daily. So Salesforce, I'm not going to rank these. That's okay. One that I love that probably isn't what you normally hear is Adobe Creative Suite. When they moved that online, I could probably spend an hour just talking about that. That was brilliant on Adobe's So like side. Photoshop or? Photoshop, InDesign, like all of the, the PDF reader, everything that goes in the Adobe Creative Suite, I, I use quite a bit. Monday.com, I've used for a Ooh. long time. We were using Trello and we moved to Monday probably f- three or four years ago. But I, you know, as much as people love to hate on it, Salesforce... I use it all the time. The data's there. I do like Salesforce. I would say if you would have asked me that question eight years ago, I'd be like, gosh, Salesforce. <laughs> but uh, after having getting baked into it, it's honestly my favorite CRM. I do think Salesforce is going to really struggle in the next 10 years. I think the data model is changing and I think they're going to struggle to keep up. It's going to be very similar to like General Motors, right? Like they're this massive company, but then they can't turn the corner. There's a Tesla, in my opinion, leaking around the corner for Salesforce. Yeah, I would agree with you if they hadn't snatched up Slack, to be honest with you. I thought that was brilliant. I don't I have a very strong opinion about Slack in general, but I I do think that their M&A activity is very interesting. I agree with you that they're going to have to shift at some point like all businesses do. <laughs> but yeah. I think people have been saying that for a decade and they haven't slowed down, which is very interesting. You have some interesting opinions in regards to the, your, your two, three pieces of software that have made you a success from a business perspective. What about like personal productivity apps? Are there any personal apps on your phone or Chrome extensions that you're like, man, I can't live without this? One password. <laughs> one pass, okay. Oh, I love one pass. So one pass, and you're going to laugh. I love Outlook on the iPhone. Jesus Christ. I love Outlook's mobile I don't mobile think we could be friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we could do this. I was so surprised when Seismic's a Microsoft, you know, 360 shop. And yeah. I got on it on my, like the desktop is a whole other thing. But I got on the mobile app. I was like, wow. Because I was using Superhuman before. I couldn't get there to pay for it. And 
I didn't think it was making me that more productive. But outside of that, that's pretty much what I use. And then I usually go back to the taking notes on paper every six months. <laughs> so you naturally, you have a very, very unique view of the marketplace, right? You've been in the industry for a while. You were on the VC side. Now you're even at a technically a MarTech company, in my opinion, right? Sales tech, MarTech. What's going to be the biggest things that are going to change in the future? When you think about the predictions of the stack and predictions of the tools, what are the things you see in the next five or 10 years? It's no different than what's happened in the past. It's consolidation. Like mm. you get to a certain point in MarTech and sales tech and email marketing back in the day where you have so many point solutions that you have to consolidate. I can't keep track of 50 pieces of technology in a tech stack. That's not how much we have. But I think it's fun to talk about trends and where is it's going, but it's going to be consolidation. It's going to be mm. how do we get it working in one system so it's easier to manage and the data is all in one place. And that's, you know, the marketing clouds are great examples of that. When they, when Adobe brought it up, when Salesforce brought it up, when Oracle, you know, Oracle bought responses to build their marketing cloud, it's putting the data all in one place. This has been amazing. You're awesome, Kyle. I appreciate you taking the time. I know the audience is going to be super, super thankful that we got a chance to have you here. So thanks so much for being able to do this. It really was fun. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That wraps another awesome interview. Let's run through some of the cool stuff we learned from Kyle today. One of the biggest takeaways was the importance of enablement. In order to have an effective use of your team's effort, the tools they use, and efficient processes, you have to constantly be giving your team training and the knowledge they'll need to be successful. Your tools will only take you so far if you don't train your staff properly. Don't undervalue enabling your team. You have to build cool shit, just like I lay out in my book, you should stop by buildcoolshit.com and order some free copies for your team to help better train them on the modern marketing tech stack. Another thing we talked about was prioritizing customer experience. You may have a super cool tool that you like. You may love that tool a lot, but if the customer's experience interacting with that tool isn't great, then it's really not worth having in your stack. As a tech stack nerd, we often forget who the priority is. We get caught up in our egos and build things that we like and are passionate about, and we forget our top priority is the customer's experience. Yes, we all loved building that 74 field and 26 step form with dynamic logic and personalization, but in reality, the customer hated it and quit after three fields. On that idea of user experience, Kyle said Outlook has a great mobile app, and this all came down to the user experience. On the flip side though, the web version is a terrible user experience and is one of the reasons I dog on them all the time. So user experience does really matter. Well, that's enough of my opinions. Join me each week on The Stack and thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week. 